Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, good morning. Happy Mother's Day. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors. I'm really glad to see you. Let's get to it. Titus chapter 2 is, is where we find ourselves this morning, working our way through that really important New Testament letter written by Paul to a young pastor, which is more than just instructions for a young pastor. I think it's a sort of little manifesto for how a church should live together in a fallen culture. And so if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, and you can find Titus chapter 2. If you're not used to looking up verses in the Bible, in those Bibles, you can find it on either page 988 or 784. And we're going to get in the habit of doing this, just putting little page numbers there for you, um, and you can, you can just look at that. So we're going to, I usually say it, but um, this is the first Sunday that we're putting it on the screen, so... I'll do it a couple times, and we're just going to have it on the screen. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that Bible and keep it. I think that you will be helped today if you open the Bible and you follow along for yourself. That's one of the ways that I, 20-something years ago when I became a Christian, uh, as in my first year of college, listening to a pastor preach through the Bible, that's one of the ways that I... Uh, really became more familiar with the book, and we are people that just love the Bible here. So find that in just a moment. Also, just want to tag on to what Robert said about Happy Mother's Day, and it's really, we use it as an opportunity here at Crosspoint to celebrate uh, really femininity and womanhood, biblical womanhood. We know that that's under attack in our culture, and so praise God for, for godly women, women in process, becoming more like like Jesus. To that end, we have a, a resource. We sell some good uh, gospel-centered books in the resource room at cost, and we, we stock that with things that we think are helpful. One in particular that we got this week that is aimed for women, and I think a real encouragement to women, is a book called Found in Him, The Joy of the Incarnation and Our Union with Christ. It's by a author, a very respected author named Elise Fitzpatrick. And I think she does a wonderful job in all of her writing, but in this book in particular, I skimmed it this week, of just helping women, and really all believers, but in particular women, find their identity in Christ rather than the things that the culture tells women that they need to be, whatever that is, you know, like super mom, or you need to keep up with what everybody else is doing in child parenting. And it's a couple of weeks ago, I just thought about, you know, what, what, where, where is grace for the woman who you know, isn't gluten-free, hasn't worked out and done CrossFit by 5.30 in the morning, whose kids misbehave in the restaurant. You know, I mean, come on. I mean, thank God. I'm not saying all those things are bad, but, you know, just this sort of Facebook world. I mean, can it junk you up? Junks me up. I mean, my goodness. I just want to go to sleep and put a pillow over my head sometimes. But this is a wonderful book, Um, and we're selling it in the Resource Center. I got about 10 copies. Uh, Would love for you to get this. Does any woman just want this book? Yes, I see right there, David and Christy Weeks. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're getting it for your wife, Christy. There you go. That's for you, Christy. <laughs> you're serving her today. Praise God. All right, well, let's get into Titus chapter 2. This beautiful short letter that we find ourselves in. Remember, we hit the pause on our series through Genesis. 
We're going to pick back up in Genesis here later in the summer in June. We're spending the month of May in Titus, four weeks. The plan today is to work through chapter 2 and to kind of look at the doctrine of chapter 2, what it's saying to us. And then next week, we're going to we're going to spend another week in Titus 2, but do like application of what a culture that takes discipleship and growing in Christ seriously and being on mission seriously, what that looks like in the life of a church. So uh, today is going to be more 30,000 foot grand level doctrinal working our way through this chapter and then Next week, we're going to zero in on one particular aspect that I think Paul is drawing out in this chapter, which is what a culture of discipleship should look cross-generationally in a church and how older men and older women should train the younger generations uh, and teach them to live lives in accord with sound doctrine. So we'll do that next week. And then the following week in May, or the following Sunday in May, we'll finish up with a look at Titus chapter 3. Before I read, let me just give you the outline. We're going to hang everything on these two thoughts here. And so I want you to have this so that you can be kind of sniffing it out as we go through this chapter. So I think Paul is making one sort of grand point here. He is saying first that Christians should live lives, in, uh, live lives that adorn the gospel to an onlooking world. So you can just write that down there. We're going we're gonna to look at the first 10 verses, and I think that's what the first 10 verses are saying, that we as Christians should live lives that adorn the gospel. And that word adorn means to, not because the gospel's lacking and needs our help, but it means to beautify, to display, to commend the gospel to an onlooking world that is looking at Christianity, looking for uh, hypocrisy, or looking to, to, to scorn it. So we should live lives that adorn the gospel to an onlooking world. And then secondly, we are enabled, we're fueled, we're empowered to live lives this way by the gospel itself that we are adorning to an onlooking world. So it's kind of like a circle. Live lives that adorn the gospel as a local church. And the glorious good news is that we're We're fueled by that gospel itself to live in this way. So before I read, before I pray and read, let's just kind of catch up with Paul's logic here. In the first chapter last week, he he exhorted this young pastor Titus to find good men. The Bible calls them elders or overseers or pastors might be another word that we would use. To find good men who are men of good character. They're not spectacular you know, awesome people with great charisma, necessarily good-looking cats that are, you know, super awesome and leadership skills. They're just good men who are good, consistent examples of what it means to follow Jesus, who have a firm grasp on the Bible and all of the good doctrine that flows out of it, because then they are to lead the church, these elders, pastors, overseers. Again, all those three words mean the same thing. These men are to lead the church by teaching the church the word of God. So the church is to be led by the word of God as it's delivered by these men being faithful to it. In contrast to these these Cretan cultural liars that exist in the culture of Crete that Paul is writing to this church in Crete. He's saying in contrast to a culture 
that lies about what it means to follow God or tries to add things to what it means to follow God. You are to choose men who are to have a firm grasp on what it means to be a Christian and that they are to stand and be able to not only teach good doctrine, but then refute those who contradict it. And then chapter 2 now is where he's zeroing down in on how this should kind of look in the life of a church. So let's, let's pray and let's, let's work our way through it. Father, as we, as we come to your word, I, man, I just am freshly thrilled and humbled by the opportunity to, to come and to open your book. Or thank you for just the great grace to work our way through the Bible to open up the text, to explain it, to apply it to our lives, to see the gospel in it, and to really take great comfort and security in it. Help us now to to see what you are saying to your church in these words. Help us to see the gospel in this text. I pray that Christians would be simultaneously convicted and encouraged. And I pray that my friends that are in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ, and certainly there are some, with a crowd this size, I pray, God, that you, by your kind and sovereign and free and extravagant grace, would give them the very thing that you require of them, which is faith and repentance. Lord, the good news of the gospel, I'm so thankful for this, the good news of the gospel is not that we must muster up holiness or righteousness or faith, but that Jesus is so beautiful and so lovely that when he decides to make himself known, that he, you, by your Holy Spirit, give eyes to see and ears to hear. Jesus is so lovely that he is irresistible. I pray that by your sovereign grace, you would do that today because of your grace and not because of our strength, that you would give people that have came into this room this morning not trusting in Christ, that you would give them eyes to see the beautiful joy that is Jesus and his work on our behalf. I pray that you do these things for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's read verses 1 through 10. And let's center on this idea that Paul is commending the church to live lives that adorn the gospel to an onlooking world. And once we read verses 1 through 10, we're just going to work through these verses, which I think just sort of form our outline. But as for you, writing to this young pastor Timothy, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Again, remember we said last week, don't be scared of that word doctrine. Everybody has a doctrine. A doctrine is just a set of assumptions and beliefs by which you operate life. You, everybody has a doctrine. Maybe your doctrine is, is that doctrine isn't important. Well, that's your doctrine, and it's a bad one, but you have a doctrine. <laughs> All right. So Paul is telling Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, 
that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, verse 7, in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants, or also translated slaves, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. All right, let's look at what Paul is saying here. And again, the overarching thought that I think Paul is commending in these first ten verses is that the church is to live lives, it is a consequence of believing the gospel, we're to live lives that adorn, commend, display the gospel to an onlooking world that is lying about what it means to follow God. He starts by just looking really at six different groups, different life stages, different generations that are to encourage one another. He starts with older men. And I think it's just really clear there. They're to be, to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness, which is something that we want in all men. But I'm just, I was kind of just sort of thinking about it and meditating on this passage this week, just wondering what Paul might be getting at here, what he's pushing against. You know, I thought as I get older, I'm 43 now. Ooh, that was rough. I'm 43 now. And I've noticed that although I've gotten, I think, more mature as I've aged, I think I've also gotten a little bit more irritable, you know? And isn't that, I mean, I think the reason why Hollywood can make a movie that is funny that's called Grumpy Old Men is because that's just kind of something that happens, you know? And Paul is saying here that there's this yeah, there's this maturity, there's this soundness and faith and doctrine and understanding of the Bible, but there's also this kind of humility and self-control and dignity that comes as a result of being a Christian rather than being just kind of a, a rascally, you know, get off my lawn type of like, you know, type of guy, you know? And I, I mean, I see like part of that in me, just, you know, turn the music down. Stop driving so fast. And, you know, just behave, behave, you know. And Paul's saying, no, there's more to being a witness for Christ than just kind of growing in grumpiness. Likewise, he says to older, well, actually, that's not a part of following Christ at all. I don't know why I said there's more to it. That's like not part of being an older man in Christ. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. Or slaves to much wine. I think what's in picture here is these older women are, are just instinctively viewed by younger women and then by children as they are primarily giving care to children in the home and just in our culture. That they're a real model of what it means to be a Christian and their, their lives, their speech should be consistent. Not flawless, of course. None of us are. But should be consistent with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And then women are to then 
teach. There's this intentionality, which I think is also implied with older men to younger men, but also he says it clearly here that older women are to teach what is, what is good. And I think that flows out of verse number one there, where it says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so we as a church, we as pastors, we as an older generation need to have a nose for good resources, for things that are, that are in line with good doctrine. And we need to teach these things. Verse four, teach them to who? The younger, the younger people. Verse four, so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Verse five, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, I realize for some, maybe in this room, that verse elicits a certain emotional reaction, like just that word submission, or to be submissive to your own husbands, uh, is, is controversial in our culture. I think what Paul is saying here is not that women are to be a doormat or to be like a a Stepford wife to their husbands to just sort of do whatever they say. No, that's not what the Bible has in view. What the Bible has in view is that women and men in their relationship as husband and wife are to mirror and to echo the relationship of Christ and his church. In fact, that's Paul's argument in Ephesians chapter 5. He's saying, husbands, you are to be like Jesus to lay down your life as a humble sacrifice for women, for the, for the women, specifically for your wife, and women to your own husbands, you then are to come alongside of and to submit to that type of Christ-like, humble, self-giving leadership of your husband. I don't know a woman who doesn't revel in that type of protection from a humble, Christ-like man. And that's what Paul is, is commending here. But I think it, it even goes further than that because I think we see in the Bible, in, for example, in First Peter chapter 3 where there's this situation that Peter is addressing of women who are in a marriage where the husband is not a Christian. And he says, even then, live your life as a woman in such a way, as a wife in that relationship, so that by your conduct, your posture of humility towards your husband might be used as a means of grace to bring your unbelieving husband to faith. Listen to this excellent definition about what it, of submission from a really helpful book. It's called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. We do sell it in the Resource Center. If we're out of it, we'll order some more copies soon. It's edited by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. I think many of you have heard of them. John Piper is a, a pastor from Minneapolis, Bethlehem Baptist Church, just recently re- retired, very influential on all of the pastors. And Wayne Grudem, a, a seminary professor who, again, has been very influential on the pastors. They edited a book, edited a, a large book that has a bunch of um, chapters that are very helpful on this issue of what it means to be a man and a woman in Christ and how the gender should complement one another, how men and women are equal but that they've been given different roles. And so listen to their paragraph here on what submission is. Submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Listen to this. It is not an absolute surrender of her will. Rather, we speak of her disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. Christ is her absolute authority, not the husband. She submits 
out of reverence for Christ, as it says in Ephesians 5.21. The supreme authority of Christ qualifies the authority of her husband. She should never follow her husband into sin. Nevertheless, even when she may have to stand, listen to this, this is so important, because this speaks right to the issue of a woman who's married to a man who is sinning or is not a believer or who may be a Christian but is a very poor leader and is abdicating his responsibility to lead through his passiveness or his sin. Nevertheless, even when she may have to stand with Christ against the sinful will of her husband, as for example in 1 Peter 3.1 where she does not yield to her husband's unbelief, she can still have a spirit of submission, a disposition to yield. She can show by her attitude and behavior that she does not like resisting his will and that she longs for him to forsake sin and lead in righteousness so that her disposition to honor him as head can again produce harmony. And I think a good picture of what it means to be, to be a, a family founded on the gospel displaying Jesus in the church. I think that's a wonderful paragraph. Uh, and I think that's very, very helpful. And I think that is a, an explanation of what Paul means when he says submit to their own husbands. And notice also that it says working at home. Does this mean that a woman can never work outside of the home? I don't think that's what Paul is getting at there. Uh, I think we see in the scriptures, in the book of Acts, I think we see in Proverbs 31, we see instances of women earning income and working outside of the home. To, and especially in our culture today, with our economy as it is, it's just a necessity for some women to work at home. But I think what's going on there is that Paul is orienting women away from this desire to make their primary role in the world uh, that outside of the home. He's saying, no, your orientation should be towards your husband and your children. And ladies, that is not a less than, that is not less, it is a lie of our culture. Listen, this is a, a satanic lie that says that your value comes from whether or not you can make it up the corporate chat, uh, ladder or make as much as men. Don't lower yourself to be judged by that faulty, broken, sinful merit scale. That's not what it means to be a woman. And Paul is saying here that a woman's orientation, her inclination, her heart, her desire should be prioritized to, to love and serve and raise and nurture and to cultivate a good home. And praise God for so many women that are striving to do that here at Crosspoint. Many who, at the same time, work outside of the home and in the home. Because what's happening here is more than just your individual identity as a woman. There's the display of the harmony of the gospel that's going on. And he says all of this so that the word of God, God may not be reviled. Okay, let's exhale. And let's move on to verse um, 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects. Now he's zeroing in on young men and he's speaking now specifically to Titus to be an example to these men. Show yourself. I mean, it's almost like there's not much there for young men, you know. I wonder why. I was just kind of meditating on that. Maybe because... A lot of young men just tend to be complete knuckleheads. And it's like Paul is saying, 
Dudes, I'm just giving you one, like one thing here, okay? <laughs> if you can put down the Xbox for half a second, and if you can stop like hoarding toys and trinkets and exhale and just, just like do this for me, boys, because if I give you two or three things, you're so dim-witted you're going to forget it. So just be self-controlled. <laughs> and, and, and imagine like if men learn by the power of the gospel, which we're going to get to in verses 11 through 14, if men learn by the power of the gospel to subordinate their desires to the greater joy of living for Christ. Friends, that right there, that one verse would turn the church and the city and the world upside down. <laughs> right there. More on that next week. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Again, he's picking up on this idea that this young pastor, Titus, is to not be a, an, an, uh, an expert in the latest leadership models. He's to live a life that's consistent with what the Bible says. It means to be a Christian and he's to have a firm grasp on the teaching, to be sound in his speech and his doctrine so that he cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 9, bondservants are slaves. Again, another tricky little, a little distinction here. Bondservants are to be, or say, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Okay, this, these two verses scream out this question. Why does the Bible, in particular Paul here, not just outright completely uh, condemn slavery and call for an immediate abolition of slavery? Well, in order to answer that question, I think we need to do a little work to understand the context here. One is that when we're talking about bondservants or slaves in the New Testament, in biblical times, it's not exactly a one-for-one -one situation. Like most of us, when we think of slavery, we think of the absolute horror and terrible sin in the history of our nation in the slave trade from Africa in the you know, 16, 17, and 1800s. And that's not exactly, it's not quite a one-for-one -one parallel here to slavery in the New Testament times. In the Roman Empire, there were believed to be approximately 50 million slaves. One-third of the inhabitants of Rome were slaves. It was embedded in the structures of Greco-Roman society. None of this is to exonerate that or say that's okay. I'm just giving you a little backdrop here. And it wasn't necessarily financial Sometimes well-to-do people um, would be slaves, and, and it wasn't certainly ethnic. There would be people that would, um, would, would uh, of all different races, and a lot of times it was, it was a way just to pay back debts. However, it's true that they were regarded as the property of their owners, and clearly, as a result of the gospel, as a result of what it means to be a Christian in community and the image of God, that to enslave people 
and to be, to be the owners of people is, is a complete, uh, goes absolutely in the opposite direction of where the Bible sends us. And I think we do see in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, a condemnation of this. In First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul calls those people who are enslavers, he says that they are in direct violation of God's law. A whole book, a short one albeit, just one chapter in the New Testament, Philemon, is written to a slave owner, Philemon, whose slave Onesimus has escaped, unlawfully escaped from him. While Onesimus escaped, he met up with Paul in prison, converted to Christ, and now Paul, to force the issue, is sending this escaped slave back to his former owner, and he's saying, he's writing this letter to the former owner, Philemon, saying, receive this brother not as a slave, but as a brother. And Paul is teaching, not by outright condemnation, but by teaching in his, in his letters in the New Testament, the implications are of what it means to be a Christian. And what's going on here, I think, is that Paul is, is not writing a social manifesto, right? This is not like one side of the Congress trying to legislate morality. That's not the purpose of the New Testament. Paul and the New Testament writers are writing to seize, first of all, the Christian's heart, and then to, from that, let the gospel flow out of it. And as a result of the gospel, in decades and centuries, ultimately the Roman Empire will be turned upside down. And the gospel should have this sort of pervasive all-inclusive effect even on our culture. So the gospel goes deeper than just calling for a social revolution. It gets to our heart, and over the course of time, when it seizes our heart, it causes a revolution. I think a similar thing is going on when Jesus, remember in the gospel of Mark when we went through it, and the, the, the disciples and some of the other people want to make Jesus king quickly? And he said, no, 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 you, you, it's like you're starting from the outside in. You, you just want a sort of political answer to the current problem. Certainly, it was bad for Rome to be treating the Jews as they were in first century Palestine, but Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's not about me just externally solving a political problem or a social ill. It's much deeper than that. It's, it's, it's the heart that he's after, and I think that's what's going on here. And so, what's the application for us? Is that Paul is writing to people in a situation, I mean, if he would have told them to break out of being a slave because the gospel calls you to freedom, which certainly it does, that would have been like a death warrant for these people. They would have been put down. Their rebellion would have been put down. So Paul is more concerned about writing to these people, these bond servants, these slaves, who are bearing up in a bad situation. And I think that is the, the point, the application for us. There's something deeper and more eternal and more satisfying going on here than Paul giving instructions on how to get out of a bad situation. He's saying this is how you endure in it. There's something better than having a good boss. There's something better than being in an ideal job. There's something better than being in the most comfortable situation. There is the ability of a Christian to display, to adorn the gospel despite the despair of the situation. In fact, friends, zero in on this, I think that's the heart of Paul's point, is that despite a broken world, whether you're a wife married to a guy who doesn't know how to lead, or whether you are a young woman struggling with what it means to be a mom who has to work to make ends meet, 
or whether you are a bondservant or, or a worker or a young specialist in the army or a sergeant who's got a complete jerk for a platoon sergeant or whether you're a, a, a working at the bank or Aflac or Tesis or whatever the case, we all live in less than ideal circumstances. This is a less than ideal church. Some of you have to bear with just this church. And what he's saying is, can I get an amen on that last one? That was meant, you know, just to be a little something for you, a little, little tidbit. What Paul is saying is that to be a Christian is not now that, okay, I've said this little magic prayer, and now God is obligated to work everything out for me so that I can have happy Fridays and super Tuesdays, and everything can be just hunky-dory. No, he's saying that the gospel calls you now to live in this still broken world as you still deal with your jacked up life and you now against the backdrop of a broken, less than ideal world, marriage, parenting situation, church life, work life, you now have this beautiful privilege to commend and adorn the gospel to say to an onlooking world, despite how jacked up my heart still is to some degree and this world is around me, there's something better than these 80 or 90 years and it's Jesus. See that privilege? See that point there? And see how often we turn the Bible or Christianity into just tips or techniques on how to have more sort of personal comfort. Friends, the Bible and the message of the gospel is not that. In fact, it goes in the opposite direction. And it says this is what it means to be a Christian. Okay, so how do we do all this and we end with this? Verses 11 through 15. We are to live lives that adorn the gospel, and we're enabled to do this by the gospel itself. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. I think that is Paul's way of saying that Jesus has come once. In fact, that word appeared in the original language is where we get our English word epiphany from, that this... Jesus has come. He's showed himself. You know, like, oh, I have an epiphany. I finally see it. Well, that's what this word is coming from. Jesus has come. The grace of God is not a thing, an ambiguous, abstract concept. It is Jesus. For the grace of God, Jesus has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, that doesn't mean that all people are saved. Clearly, we know that's the case because we have to read the Bible in conjunction with the rest of the Bible. We have to let the Bible interpret itself. So if this was all that the Bible said about who goes to heaven, we could assume that all people are saved. But the Bible elsewhere says that clearly there are those that will reject Christ and spend eternity separated from him forever. And so what is Paul saying here? He's saying that Jesus has come and brings salvation for all people and by that instance when Paul's talking about all people, he's talking about all different types of people without distinction. Rich people, poor people, uh, colored people, white people, brown people, you know, whatever. Jews, Gentiles, everybody. And so when you see, oftentimes in the New Testament, when you see all people, it doesn't mean without exception, meaning every single individual person on the planet It means all types of people without distinguishing between the rich and the old and the ethnic groups and men and women and young and old. Bringing salvation for all types of people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing, same word as in verse 11, this epiphany, Jesus, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Okay, so I want you to see something here and then we'll be done. Is that Paul is saying to Titus that the way that you are fueled to live this life that adorns and commends the gospel to an onlooking world in a less than ideal situation is by the gospel itself. So look again at verse 11. It says that the grace of God has appeared. So Jesus has come the first time bringing salvation for all types of people, whosoever will turn and trust in Christ. So what's going on? There's so much embedded in verse 11. It is just the essence of the gospel. This is salvation. This is the gospel that we are saved not by our good works. This should be glorious news to you if you came into this room as a Christian and maybe you falsely believed that you need to do better and clean yourself up, right, before you can become a Christian. That's a lie. In fact, it's impossible for you to do that. You won't do it. You might be able to do it for six months or 12 months, but you will, because in and of your own effort, you will fall back into jacking it up. That's just what we do. We're people. We are dead in our sins. And the Bible's clear that we have all turned away from God. So there's no like bad people and you know pretty good people. There are bad people and redeemed people. I just classified the whole human race into two groups there. There are bad people and there are redeemed people. And the gospel here, how Jesus brings salvation, is all of us have rebelled, all of us have disobeyed God, all of us stand condemned, all of us are without hope, as Ephesians 2 says, before Jesus comes, and then Jesus comes, he appears, he becomes man, he's God who takes on flesh, and where we in our flesh have all disobeyed, Jesus completely obeys and satisfies God's holiness and righteousness and law through his life on this earth as a real man. And then he lays down that perfect, holy, righteous life where we were lawbreakers. He's the perfect law abider. And he lays his life voluntarily down on the cross. And because he's not just a perfect man, but because he's holy, eternal God, his sacrifice is sufficient to bear the punishment that should have been ours. So Jesus is not just another man or a good man dying as an example of what it means to be selfless. No, he is, as Timothy says, he is the God-man, the one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. And he lays down his life on the cross. Friends, listen to this. Tune in on this. I know you're thinking about pot roast at mom's house, but tune in on this. Jesus on the cross, because he's God and because he's perfect man, satisfies God's holiness and judgment. And he bears the weight of a holy and righteous God who will judge all humanity. He will judge everybody in this room. And those that are in Christ, trusting in Christ, will receive Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf. And they will be covered. They will be in Christ. And they will 
be with Jesus forever, but those that are outside of Christ will stand before God to face God's holiness for their rebellion. And Jesus comes and he lays down his life to absorb God's wrath and then rises again in victory over sin and the grave. Now calls all people everywhere, all types of people, white people, black people, brown people, yellow people, old people, young people, big people, small people, people from Alabama, people from California, people who are in the army, people who are in the navy, people who have made a complete mess of their lives, people who grew up in church, people who have never even heard the gospel. He calls all people to turn away from trusting in themselves and to trust in Jesus. Friends, that's what it means to be saved. And now here's what I want you to see, and then we're going to end on this, is that this salvation now doesn't just forgive us of our past, but what does it do? Verse 12, he trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So friends, to receive the gospel, to be a Christian, to be saved, is to do more than just to receive an acquittal of your past. It is to be empowered by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God, equipping us with the community of God's people around us, encouraging us to now live lives that are contrary to this culture that lies. Now we are now empowered to live lives that adorn the gospel so that we can stand up in the face of a culture that lies and to say yes to God and no to this world and to present a picture of what it means to follow Jesus. Friends, this is what it means to be a Christian, to live in this way. And then one final thing here, I just want you to see this and I'm gonna pray, that this is our joy, this is for our joy. It says that we wait for this blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're sort of in this tension, this in-between time between his first and second coming. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are, look at that word, zealous for good works. So now what it means to be a Christian is to love, to take joy in, to desire, to say no to sin, and to be zealous for following God and being a good example of what it means to be a Christian. Now we have this joy, like the things that I used to love before I came to Christ taste terrible to me now. And now in ever-increasing measure, I have this joy, this zealousness, this eagerness to follow God and to Live a life in line with my confession. And then Paul tells this young pastor to have steel in his spine, to exhort and rebuke with all authority and say, this is what it means to be a Christian. Live this way, church. Follow Christ in this way. It's for our joy and for our good. And let's adorn the gospel together. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us respond to these words and be this type of church. Oh, Father, these are, are weighty words. And they have massive implications for our life as a local church. Lord, the temptation and the, the lie of our culture is, is, especially here in the Bible Belt, where 
nominal Christianity, people that are Christian in name only, or people that think they're Christians because they live in the south where there's churches scattered throughout our city. The temptation that we're just born into, the the air that we breathe, is that if I just have this confession and if I just say that I believe these things, that I'm okay with God. Lord, the Bible presses on us and says that, no, this, this is what it means to be a Christian, not to be saved by your works or your holiness. We, we know that's not true. We, none of us could pass that test. But when we are truly born again, when the grace of God truly has appeared to us and we have turned from trusting in ourselves and turned in faith and repentance to Jesus, that they there will be this necessary change. There will be this clear evidence in our lives that we're now able to say no to broken, counterfeit joys and yes to joy, yes to Jesus. Say yes to satisfaction in Christ. And when we do that, as we struggle to do that, as we struggle to live out the implications of what it means to be a Christian, to adorn the gospel, we... we, enter into this beautiful privilege to display what it means to follow Jesus to an onlooking world that needs nothing more than to see a consistent example of the gospel. Lord, I I pray that you would just captivate us with that thought. Help us with that. Stir us, convict us of sin pray for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Jesus that you by your kind grace would through these words from Paul through your Holy Spirit give faith so that they would turn away from trusting in themselves and turn in faith to Jesus Lord would you do that I pray these things in Jesus name Amen.